Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Climate change, Tyler, huge. Can't escape it, can we? Can't escape it on the American Shoreline or really on the planet. Uh, one of the main biggest challenges uh, for coastal communities around the world and in the United States there's some innovative thinkers out there trying to figure out how to tackle this problem. Indeed. And we're going to talk to one of those today. A good friend of ours. A friend of the fr- podcast. Friend of the podcast. Our good friend Jim Blackburn from Houston, Texas. Jim is an environmental lawyer, uh, by longtime environmental lawyer here in the state of Texas. Kind of a legendary environmental lawyer. The best, I think. Yeah. I would agree. Yeah. And... Uh, now is a professor at Rice University's Speed Center. We'll learn a little bit about the Speed Center, a refresher. Uh, and Jim is also the president of something called the Texas Coastal Exchange. We did a show with Jim about that, Tyler. That's right. Getting into the carbon game. Getting into the carbon offset game. And he is also the CEO and board chair of an organization called B Carbon. The bottom line here, Tyler, is Jim is working very hard on a collaborative approach to respond to climate change and the risks it presents on the Texas coast. And I think he's doing some amazingly innovative work we're going to hear about today. Well, and uh, to this end, there's been some news recently. And uh, one of the initiatives that Jim has been undertaking is a living shoreline project. Now, this is a win-win on the coast because as, as ASPN listeners know, uh, well, living shorelines are a great way to uh, add resilience against rising seas and climate change, storm resilience, etc. Yeah. Uh, but there's also another benefit. They can also uh, sequester carbon, which is, of course, uh, at the heart of what we need to do here to combat climate change. So a win-win, a double-edged sword yeah, that Jim cool. has come up with. Very cool. Looking forward to talking about it with Jim Blackburn. But before we get into it, Peter... Let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest Questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline like what you're hearing and want to support the network sponsorship packages are now available go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more jim blackburn welcome back to the american shoreline podcast thank you for joining us happy to be here today thank you for having me jim you sent out a press release recently uh about the texas coastal exchanges initiative to launch a thousand mile living shoreline project. I saw that press release and immediately thought, I have got to call Jim. What an exciting and powerful project. Introduce our listeners to uh, to what you're what you're thinking about here. Well, 
the basic concept is that we have about 500,000 acres of coastal Spartina alterniflora marsh along the Texas coast. And as sea levels rise, it will become more and more vulnerable to erosion. Uh, the worry is that uh, the constant wave action from the uh, southeast predominant winds uh, will over time begin to really work against the, uh, the marsh, which will get more and more coverage by water and make it more subject to sloughing. And that marsh holds about 400 tons of uh, carbon dioxide equivalent uh, per acre, just in, in carbon that's already been sequestered, according to data from the Texas coast. And every acre of marsh we lose, we're going to be losing 400 tons of carbon dioxide back to the atmosphere. So we definitely want to protect those wetlands, not only for the carbon, but also for their contribution to the coastal estuarine productivity. We know shrimp, uh, we know that flounder, blue crab all depend on the uh, marsh as do many other species. And so if we can figure out how to protect these wetlands, we can protect both a, a source of carbon uh, storage as well as yearly, it puts more carbon into the soil. And then we found out that oyster reefs uh, actually can put uh, sequester carbon in the reef itself and oftentimes cause uh, the clarity of water causes seagrass to grow, and that's another source of carbon. So we're just really excited about the potential of protecting marshes, protecting the carbon in the marshes, and also sequestering carbon in the reef and possibly with seagrass. So it's it's a win on multiple levels. Jim, tell us about the Texas uh, Coastal Exchange, the organization that is leading this incredibly innovative approach to climate response and coastal habitat protection. Sure. Texas Coastal Exchange was actually formed out of research that was done at the Speed Center, the Severe Storm Center at Rice University. Um, we started researching, and actually it even goes back to a nonprofit called Houston Wilderness before then. But we started uh, at Houston Wilderness and then continued at the Speed Center looking for ways to pay landowners for keeping the Texas coast natural. Uh, we have a a lot of low-lying areas along the Texas coast, and we were looking to protect these low-lying areas from development that would lead to massive damage uh, when, and we know it's a question of when the big hurricanes uh, will hit the Texas coast. And so we were trying to find ecological services that we could pay landowners for. And at Speed Center, we identified that uh, we could certainly pay them for sequestration of carbon. And it turns out our coastal wetlands, our coastal prairies, our bottomland hardwoods along the coast all sequester carbon dioxide. And we began to explore paying these landowners for sequestration and quickly realized the international system uh, wasn't really well suited to it. Uh, it. All of that international system of carbon exchange comes out of the clean development mechanism of the Kyoto Protocol back in 97. And there really hasn't been a whole lot of soil carbon storage that has been approved worldwide since the, the inception of that. So we decided an alternative approach is needed and the Texas Coastal Exchange is a nonprofit that was formed to explore different pathways of paying landowners. I would add to that that subsequently a group was formed over at the Baker Institute at Rice University, which was a stakeholder group to investigate setting up a registry or a registration system for carbon credits along coming out of the same research and out of that Baker Institute work came a carbon registry called B-Carbon. 
And this thousand mile shoreline project is a collaboration between both Texas Coastal Exchange and VCARB. It's a logical progression, really, when you think about it. Uh, the idea is to recognize the reality that these wetlands and marsh areas along the Texas coast, but I imagine along really all coasts, are naturally sequestering carbon and hold a ton of carbon. They are in uh, the ownership of people, and if there was a way to capitalize on the fact that that these areas are uh, doing us a favor by holding all this carbon and capturing all this carbon, if we can create an economic system to do that, hey, uh, that's a good that's a good outcome. Uh, but I, I I wanted to ask, you know, this is obviously the a coastal idea, the thousand mile living shoreline on the coast. How do coastal wetlands and coastal marshes stack up in the carbon sequestration game against, say, forests or you know, like woodlands or things like that, Jim? Well, the data that I've seen indicates that the Coastal wetlands are among the top carbon sequestration ecosystems that we have. Certainly right up there with some of the uh, uh, bottomland hardwoods and uh, pine, uh, particularly pine systems, you know, somewhere between three to four tons of carbon dioxide per acre per year uh, should be occurring on the Texas coast. I think it, it actually is higher on the Louisiana coast and some of the other coastlines. Uh, so, I mean, there is a regional variability, but it, they are incredibly efficient uh, at sequestering carbon dioxide. So there's no question they have tremendous merit in that regard. And they've been doing this for uh, decades, if not centuries, at the current locations. So they have a lot of carbon. And the interesting thing about these wetlands is that the, the wetland actually gains elevation over time as it sequesters carbon. So it actually has the ability to keep up with sea level rise if we can protect it and give it a chance to do that. And it may need a source of sediment as well. And so sediment is a key aspect here as well. And we're trying to look at designs that will increase uh, both the uh, one protection and, and if you will, the breakwater action against waves, but mm -hmm. secondarily trying to enhance um, sedimentation within the marsh, all of which will help the marsh survive and continue to sequester carbon. And that is a cool thing. It's a, and, and you're right down the middle, uh, thin layer placement or the addition of material to these uh, drowning marshes with sea level rise is going to be important and to keep these marshes in the zone where they can survive. Uh, the project is funded, according to the press release by John, I think it's Toish, maybe, of That's Seattle. Uh, John, John Toish of Seattle and the Meadows Foundation to... Uh, really notable funders here. Can you talk to us a little bit about the process of, uh, that you are going to undertake? Maybe the, the cost of the initiative to, to really put this thousand mile sh living shoreline project together? Well, sure. The funding from Meadows Foundation and uh, John Torch of Seattle uh, was used to basically identify areas along the Texas coast that we thought would be the prime suitability areas relative to creating a living shoreline. We wanted to make sure there was coastal wetlands there. We wanted to make sure that we understood the fetch conditions, the erodibility potential of an area. We wanted to certainly know if there was endangered species. We wanted to know about sea level rise and what the implications were for it moving inland. 
uh, we wanted to look at a lot of variables. And so uh, we used a geographic uh, information system uh, from uh, some researchers here in my office. And they did a beautiful job of overlaying this, but the funding from Meadows and from Torch well, allowed us to uh, bring in uh, experts that could help us with the design, with the optimization of these concepts to begin with. And we have received uh, subsequent uh, funding that will uh, be announced um, in a couple of weeks over at B Carbon to take this design to the next level to basically determine how to go about awarding carbon sequestration credits as a registry for these living shoreline projects. And um, I'm happy to talk about the concepts behind it, uh, but we don't have all aspects of the methodology determined yet. That is, uh, that's coming in the next few months. Could you, could you go into that, Jim, a little bit? Uh, you know, even just uh, what problems exist, you know, what, what questions have to be answered in order to come up with what a carbon credit system might look like? Well, one, uh, we're looking at this uh, complex of a breakwater, uh, if you will, a lagoon behind the breakwater, and then the coastal wetland, and then the upland behind the wetland. Uh, what we're anticipating with sea level rise is, among other things, uh, waters will move further inland. And a lot of landowners have no incentive to allow the marsh to migrate inland, because frankly, landowners don't make much money, if any, off of the marsh. Now, the marsh does tremendous work for all of us in that it is the nursery for uh, uh, crabs, shrimp, uh, flounder. Uh, they really nourish the bays. Uh, but the landowner doesn't get paid for that. That's one of the ecological services we'd like to see the landowner paid for. Uh, but, but right now, we don't really see a mechanism for doing that. However, that marsh is also sequestering carbon. And if we can create a carbon market for the marsh, then the landowner will have an incentive to allow and even to help the marsh migrate inland with sea level rise. So we're looking to create a, a, a viable evaluation system for how to create credits in the marsh. And it turns out we're working with Heart Research Institute down in Corpus and uh, Larry McKinney and I have had a number of conversations about the fact that the reef itself the oyster reef itself will sequester carbon, not so much in the calcium carbonate of the shells, but in the, the organic matter that becomes deposited within the reef complex itself. Hmm. And they have measured that, and we're going to be undertaking through B-carbon a detailed study, both of marsh sequestration, the sequestration that occurs in the oyster uh, reef itself, and then to the extent that seagrass grows adjacent to the reef, which uh, Larry had uh, high expectations about, particularly in the mid-coast and lower coastal areas, then we will uh, also see carbon sequestration from that new uh, seagrass. Uh, the overall concept is that by protecting the marsh and preventing erosion, whoever pays for construction of the reef gets the credits for the reef plus the credits for the protected avoided loss of the wetlands, the landowner would get paid for the yearly accumulation of carbon and for any expansion inland. And that is the basic concept that we are pursuing. So there would be credits to the oyster reef, both for protection and for sequestration itself, and then credits to the landowner for the continued viability of the marsh as a carbon sequestration sink. 
those are the concepts we're working on. Well, that's the magic, Tyler. In my mind's eye, I see a <laughs> bank vault made out of oyster shells. <laughs> You're protecting the carbon, and which which we need to do. Yeah. Well, you know, I think what Tyler and I have spent time on in, in our consulting practice back in the day was financing of coastal restoration projects. It's always difficult, Jim. And it sounds like the concept that the Texas Coastal Exchange is pursuing here uh, would use the value of the carbon offset credits to run the system. Is that accurate? Uh, are, are you foreseeing that the construction costs, for example— of a living break, uh, living shoreline uh, project in a particular area, is funded in part by the credits, or how does how does the construction cost get handled? No, that's exactly what our proposal is. We yeah. think that if we can create the credit process like I described, yeah. then a company could pay for a mile of shoreline. Uh, you know, they would create a mile, so let's say, of a, a rock-filled baskets that oysters uh, would uh, oyster spat would settle on, and the oysters would grow out of that basket and and create a reef. Uh, assuming a company paid for that, now we don't know exactly what the cost of that will be yet. I think right. that will vary by location. Um, we have um, a consulting engineering firm, AECOM, that's going to work with B Carbon on developing a, an ideal uh, design for these breakwaters based on how big the fetch is, how long the fetch is, uh, how kind of rough, if you will, the shoreline is, and uh, come up with uh, some optimal designs, and, and the cost will vary by design. Hmm. But let's just say that uh, the cost would be uh, $500,000 uh, per mile or something like that. We have estimations that we could protect somewhere between $350,000 worth and perhaps $3 million worth of wetlands, depending on our understanding. Of, and this is where we're going to have to sit down with wetland experts and really work on what is a reasonable loss scenario in the future. And then what would be the avoided loss associated with that reef? And then that would be what would be turned into the credits. And Got again, we we intend to use science. Everything B Carbon, which is the credit registry, uh, has done has been very science oriented in its credits. Uh, if we've made any errors, it's in uh, being uh, extremely scientific about how we approach uh, this whole issue of carbon credits. And good. We want to, I don't think that that's an issue at all. I think that's, that that's required. That's yeah, that's good <laughs> stuff well, right there. It has to be. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not convinced that's the case with every carbon credit out there. And so I no, think we're not. trying to, to really make sure we get to get it right. We basically have a duty to the public and to the buyers to make sure that the credits that we're creating are real and that they can be measured, that they're finite. And so we're going to be working at B Carbon to develop that process and protection. And we're not there yet. But our anticipation from the work that Texas Coastal Exchange has done is that uh, those that invest in building the shoreline should be able to recapture most, if not all, of the construction costs uh, uh, by essentially the carbon credits that they would be buying. And, of course, a lot of that depends on the price of carbon. Yeah. If we get carbon up to $50 a ton, I have no doubt that we're going to be able to pay off those uh, shorelines, maybe able to do it at 20 to $25 a ton as well. So You'd be a fool it, not to do it at, that, at those prices. I mean, Well, we're anticipating a lot of interest. 
Well, and this is a this is one of the big risks in these uh, endeavors is is to anticipate uh, what the carbon credit market will look like over the next. I'm just going to say five years. Let's say three years even. It's very much evolving, Jim. Um, what does your analysis tell you about the uh, likely development of the carbon credit market? Well, I mean, there's there's all sorts of, uh, how would you say, analyses floating around out there. It, it's one of the most interesting times I've ever encountered because each company is developing its own blueprint. There is no widely accepted blueprint as to how to go forward with achieving net zero, which is becoming more and more important. Uh, the recent IPCC report that just came out indicates that we're going to have to see significant progress by 2030. And in every projection I have seen, nature plays a, a role, I would say between 10 and 20% of the carbon credits or the carbon reduction strategies, mm -hmm. offset strategies that will be utilized will be nature-based solutions of various types. On a global basis, 10% would be 4 billion tons. 20% um, would be 8 billion tons. In the United States, 10% uh, would be about 600 million tons. And 20% would be upwards of 1.2, 1.5 billion tons. So we're talking about a tremendous nature-based market uh, almost regardless of who you talk to, nature will play a role of some type. I think the, the real question is how quick will that nature market really become expanded? And what are its capabilities of expand in a reason to expand in a reasonable and defensible manner? And I think what we're learning is that what groups like uh, a registry like B carbon uh, is uh, considers itself creative science-based, not tied to the international standard. And it has a lot more flexibility about pursuing very interesting strategies uh, for realizing carbon credits, everything from uh, various types of avoided conversion credits to substitute products credits to uh, agricultural uh, use practices change credits to mm -hmm. carbon sequestration in, in oyster reefs, wetlands, coastal prairies, uh, inland prairies, forests. It is a huge potential field out there. I, 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 and I think it's absolutely the future. And what comes to mind immediately is, Peter, uh, our recent discussions at the Ocean Exploration Forum, and just, you know, the, the technology, the machine learning, the ability to actually understand how environmental systems are participating in carbon sequestration naturally. And we're going to be, we will be able to measure it, measure it in the future. But the problem is like right now, we're, we're at that point where we, we know we have the problem. We don't exactly know how all of these systems work. And I, we do know that our understanding is going to get better. And that gets into the confidence of the credit part. Um, so I, you know, I, th I th Jim, it just, it sounds like there is uh, I don't want to say, I mean, it's a beautiful thing. I have to say, I think this is a beautiful thing. It's the future. It's happening. It's the, but it's chaotic in this moment. There's, there lacks uh, a, a high degree of clarity or consensus as to how to 
tabulate up these things. What, Jim, do you, do you have any idea? I mean, obviously, you're, you're leading this effort with the Texas Coastal Exchange and B Carbon. Uh, you're a thought leader broadly, and there are a lot of, there, you know, you're not alone. There's, there are several other, many, many other players out there. What, what will be the, the tipping point when we all fall in line, do you think? Uh, I think there's there's several things. I think one coming up with good ideas like the Living Shoreline. That if, if you look at the co-benefits of the Living Shoreline, there are people that would suggest we ought to be building the Living Shoreline just for the benefits to the bays and estuaries. Yes. Um, to be able to to have a, if you will, a, an oyster refuge. Uh, it'll be. I mean, this will not be harvested oyster areas. These will be areas that, uh, assuming we get them established in kind of. Our salinity gradients are changing in the bay. So if we pick the areas where the conditions will become favorable for oysters as well as where they are currently favorable, we may be enhancing uh, the seed stock of oysters. We'll certainly be supporting the shrimp and, uh, and crab and flounder fishery as well as many of the other uh, bait fish uh, that are uh, kind of so critical to the food chain of the yeah. bay. There, there's a reason to do this apart from anything related to carbon. So if we can use carbon as an engine to propel this, I think it can, it will take off on its own speed. And there are enough benefits other than carbon that it, to some extent, makes the carbon credit in a way less important. And certainly, I think in the long run, uh, perhaps less controversial than some of the other concepts of carbon uh, sequestration. What? So I think by combining these benefits, uh, we really uh, kind of go way beyond carbon to Becoming, and you mentioned earlier about getting a, a new economic system, and I think that we are developing a new economic system, and I think it will be a system that puts the economy much more in line with ecology. Yeah. Uh, I think it's been, it's been called the circular economy in, many, in, in other contexts, particularly in the plastics industry, but uh, I think that we are on the brink of a major, major transition in the way we think about economy. What I'm talking about here is creation of coastal infrastructure of a very, very different type. Uh, I teach in civil engineering, and I promise you the coastal engineers I've talked to have not thought of nature as being part of the infrastructure of coastal protection. And I think that's changing, and I think this is part of our evolving view. And so one could think that this is all about building the infrastructure for the future, along with, uh, frankly, the registry being part of the infrastructure for the future and the carbon credit system being part of that infrastructure for the economy of the future, which is a little different way of thinking about it. Well, I really love it. And what, what I think, you know, just to zoom out and think kind of like, you know, systematically what's happened here, Peter, is the living shoreline concept has been embraced by ASBPA. You know, this was the, the talk of the the conventions, you know, this is the direction we were supposed to go in, move from gray infrastructure, concrete, hardened stuff to softer nature-based solutions, mimicking nature's way. Uh, but, and, and, and that, that has been like the best practice, or at least the, what the, the trend has been to move in that direction for some time. What's interesting, Jim, about what you're doing, what I, I love is that you are actually putting the carbon thing uh, into the driver's seat. And what's neat about the carbon idea is that there is value in the credit, in the sequestration, in the capture of 
the carbon from the atmosphere and just holding it in these systems. And then on top of that, you get all of the other ecological benefits that were already being celebrated uh, for, by coastal managers who were worried about erosion and you know, trying to maintain channels and all that stuff. So it's really a, it's, it really comes into the win-win, like you know, it falls in line really nicely. And I agree about the economic system and combining the ecology piece. Uh, that is absolutely gotta be the way of the future. And so this is cool. Now, are you with B carbon? Are you thinking globally here? Are you thinking that this that this can be the the exchange for nature based land water interface carbon? Uh, absolutely, uh, B carbon is both open to and thinking much more broadly than the Texas coast. Um, I mean, on the one hand, the Texas coastal exchange uh, visualization not of a uh, living shoreline project. Uh, you know, adjacent to a single piece of property um, as part of a project, but rather thinking of it as an entire thousand mile shoreline project. I think that scale of thinking is what we have to have with regard to carbon. Uh, we, you know, we're not talking about uh, dribs and drabs here and there. We're talking about massive withdrawal of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, as well as maintaining the existing stocks of carbon that we've got. So we have a lot of work to do, but we've got to think at scale. And I think, of, if anything, this uh, scale of the Texas coast is only the starting point. I think we've got to think in terms of the United States coastline. I think we've got to think about, if you will, oyster growing areas all over the world. Um, and, you know, think that, you know, the potential is incredible. I've asked, I've already had people asking me about mangroves, which I know a lot less about than I do coastal Spartina alterniflora. Uh, but I think around the world where you've got the right conditions, uh, the carbon potential uh, is there and B carbon is going to be very interested in working around the world. Uh, we already are in the process of approving our first credits from the United Kingdom at B carbon. And um, we have interest in uh, from projects in Australia and South America uh, and around the world. So it is not a uh, B carbon is not limited to either Texas or the United States, but has uh, certainly opened to global certification if the science is there, and if the um, uh, if we feel that our duty to the public and to the buyers can be um, uh, taken care of adequately from a science standpoint. Jim, you mentioned that AECOM, the uh, fine engineering firm, is working with B carbon. Um, can you tell us about their role, and when would we, when might we see uh, the first project uh, design entering a permitting process for approval? Uh, good question on timing. Uh, we're executing contracts at the current time, um, and we'll be making announcements about uh, all of the contracts that we are putting together in another two weeks. Uh, the design engineering work here, among other things, is computer modeling to understand, you know, how wide does this living uh, breakwater need to be? You know, how high above uh, medium or, or mean high tide does it need to be, or can it be covered mm -hmm. at mean high tide? Uh, we're trying to understand that from a breakwater dynamic standpoint. Uh, is it a 10 foot wide, a five foot wide, a 30 foot wide breakwater? Mm -hmm. What difference does that make? Is width more important than height? 
mm-hmm. you know, these are issues we're trying to understand to optimize the breakwater effect. I mean, we're, you know, we, you know, this is not a breakwater for hurricane surge tide. I mean, that'll go over everything. Right. Uh, but we, you know, we're really talking about the daily prevailing winds. Uh, we've initially focused on uh, north shorelines because of the prevailing southeast wind on the Texas coast. Uh, you know, we've also got the backside of some of the barrier islands to consider when the north winds blow. And so we've got a lot of variations to look at, and we're looking to the engineering firm, uh, AECOM, to help us understand if you will, how we might want to vary our design based on where the breakwater is located, uh, kind of, if you will, how hard its job is going to be. There are probably going to be areas where breakwater will cost twice as much as in other areas. Uh, right. Know, but we've got to understand that. Uh, so, you know, that's where the engineering firm comes in. Uh, we're working with hard research. Uh, Jenny Pollard's going to work with us on uh, some of the design aspects of the and understanding the oyster uh, reef sequestration process and how much credit that gets. Uh, we've got um, uh, uh, others that are working with us on the, uh, the understanding the wetland sequestration and really the wetland protection process and uh, how to think of it and how to understand it. Uh, so there's a lot of science that's going to go into the development of the credit protocol. Well, it's essential, and I, I'm glad to hear that uh, science first in the in the in the analysis of the carbon credit and the verification of the credit absolutely essential. I think to have credibility in the marketplace, uh, Jim. Transactionally, you mentioned a couple of things. So, if I if I were a uh, a company interested in credits, it sounds like I could work with you uh, and come in and and finance. I guess the creation of a living shoreline segment of a particular size. And if I were to do that, I'm entitled to the credits that the project ultimately produces as certified by B Carbon. Uh, I would assume as an investor that uh, my hope is that the value of the credits would be greater than the cost of the project. Uh, is that how it's going to work uh, with respect to, to that component of the project? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, you know, we haven't figured out yet. I mean, the the companies might actually work with uh, project developers that would be uh, that would kind of look at our crediting process and say, yeah, I think I can, you know, I think I'd like to build 10 miles of living shoreline at this location and then go out and find investors that would uh, would fund I that see. in order and in exchange for credits that would be approved by B carbon I, I got it i don't think B carbon i mean B carbon itself is just the registry yep. it would set up a process and then it would have if you will an independent verification process that would verify that the protocol was being followed got it uh, project developers would submit applications to B carbon for the approval of credits based on the methodology, and then that would be subject to review. There's going to be various types of paperwork that will have to be worked out. There'll need to be obviously permitting to build it. You asked the question earlier about timing on permitting. That is probably going to be one of the, the big issues in terms of how fast we can implement these things. Uh, if we can come up with a process that the Texas General Land Office feels comfortable with, uh, that will certainly help us a bit, but the Corps of Engineers is going to be involved in permitting as well, and we've hmm. got to work through that. Uh, we're going to work with Texas Parks and Wildlife and uh, make sure they're uh, uh, comfortable with everything that's being done. 
And uh, so there's, there's a lot of work to be done before we build the first one of these, but we'll have the framework for this uh, design probably by the end of the summer. Hmm. Fantastic. And the other component of this is the upland landowners adjacent to the project. And it, it sounds like what you said was as the project gets uh, implemented every year, credits are produced based on the performance of the project. Uh, if the wetland recedes into the upland owner's property, uh, which is what we want, we want the, we want the wetland to continue to exist uh, there's an opportunity for the coastal landowner to benefit from that annual accrual of credits. Um, can you expand on that a little bit? Well, sure. And this is actually where Texas Coastal Exchange has some experience. Uh, Texas Coastal Exchange has a website that individuals can go to and can make a donation to cover uh, their footprint. And uh, this year we've received about $30,000 in um and carbon uh, revenue. And uh, we are working uh, arrangements out with private owners of wetlands to uh, secure uh, the sequestration rights uh, for their wetlands to cover um, what would be about, I don't know, probably 1,500 tons of carbon dioxide storage. And, uh, and Texas Coastal Exchange will be announcing those landowners in the not too distant future that they're working with now. But we're working to create a market where these landowners begin to appreciate they can be paid for owning a wetland and for maintaining it and allowing it to expand. And uh, TCX has been doing this now for several years and has worked with uh, LaBelle Ranch and Jimmy Broussard and others up in the Port Arthur area. We're working uh, with the Galveston Bay Foundation, Matagorda Bay Foundation, Scenic Galveston, different groups like that. Uh, to help them obtain wetland areas, to help them defray the cost by basically paying them for the annual sequestration. So we're using these credits right now, or at least the, the concept of individual footprint offset, to help expand and protect existing wetlands. Uh, but we're creating landowner relationships in the, in the process. And the database that we have has the names of all of the coastal landowners. Uh, so we, we know who to get in contact with, we know who to work with, and we will be doing this over the next year. One of the things that's coming to my mind, uh, Jim, is that uh, there are municipalities, public entities that are uh, interested in uh, b constructing pro projects just like these as part of their coastal protection work. Uh, Peter, we interviewed the port director of the Port of San Francisco, and what you're describing here, Jim, is very similar to what uh, she was describing to us several years ago about how uh, the San Francisco, the, the city of San Francisco might protect itself from a rising uh, San Francisco Bay. Uh, in other words, building up a wetland surrounding uh, where the kind of the port currently is. And I'm wondering if you've given any thought to how public projects might uh, be able to participate in a wetland uh, car credit accrual? Could the public make money on this? Could this help fund public projects? Well, I mean, I think any project developer could participate, at least in the, uh, let's say, in the Galveston Bay area. Most of the municipalities' uh, jurisdiction, uh, but the wetland areas have already been lost. So, much of the carbon that you would want to protect is no longer there. 
So we're really looking at the less developed areas of the Texas coast where we have the greatest potential to use this concept. Now, where there are existing wetlands adjacent to uh, urbanized areas, then I would say the potential, you know, begins to go up significantly. Uh, but everything's harder where there's a lot of development. And um, well, let me give you another example, just just for the sake of argument. I'm I'm just okay. I'm just I'm just spitballing. But like, let's say TPWD, which yeah. has got the Powderhorn Ranch, which I believe has yeah. a bunch of coastal wetland waterfront. Um, Excellent opportunity. Yeah. What, what's in it for TPWD? What's in it for the Texas taxpayers? My question. I mean, would, would they be able to uh, fill their coffers to some degree and, and fund, I don't, help fund their programs uh, with this money? Well, first of all, anyone can fund one of these projects. So, yeah, public, private uh, doesn't make any difference. I think to be the landowner that benefited in that case, now you're talking about, say, a Texas Parks and Wildlife Wildlife Management Area that we would be protecting. And I think, yeah, they could very definitely participate. And I don't think the state has any restrictions. Uh, some of the federal lands may have restrictions on the extent to which they can participate, but the oyster reef could still be built to protect them. And it's actually the reef protection that gets the credit for the, if you will, the aborted conversion of the wetland, uh, the protection of the wetland in the long term is actually from the reef hmm. and not necessarily from the landowner. So they're there is all types of potential for how these credits might work. But yes, public involvement is absolutely possible. Uh, it's just public, just getting the public sector to make a decision is so much more <laughs> difficult than getting the private sector to make a decision. Um, I, am, yeah. I am less hopeful, unfortunately, <laughs> just because I, I have some experience in the time. Well, you know, Jim, I, I have faith in your power of persuasion, yeah. and uh, <clears throat> I'm glad we're talking about this public sector component because I cannot help but think that the Army Corps of Engineers, which is in the middle, Tyler, of designing the Coastal Barrier Project for Galveston Bay, including hopefully the, uh, the, uh, the park bay option, Jim, that the Speed Center developed, uh, about a third of that $30 billion budget is supposedly going to go to habitat restoration strategies as part of the protection of the Galveston Bay system and the petrochemical complexes and in the Galveston Bay system. Um, gee whiz, you think there ought to be a credit opportunity with the Corps of Engineers here? Maybe something where uh, our friends in the Corps take a hard look at how uh, carbon offset credits might be integrated into that federal project. Has that crossed your mind? Well, yeah, it definitely has. And I think it, frankly, ought to be part of the course thinking. I think Damn well be. should be. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, they are building breakwaters along the intercoastal waterway from uh, Galveston Bay system all the way down, I think, to the far end of the Matagorda Bay system. And those are actually very important uh, design elements. And they're, they're bigger breakwaters than what I'm talking about here with the Living Shoreline because – they're really yeah. trying to keep the erosion of the intercoastal waterway from expanding. And there's a ship lot wakes. of wetlands. Yeah, ship There's a problem. lot of wetlands. They have taken credit for those wetlands, but they have not thought about monetizing the carbon credits. And huh. B-Carbon would work with them to do that as yeah. well. So, yeah. I mean, that potential is there. It's just, i got to tell you, the <laughs> uh, climate has been such a difficult issue for governmental agencies because of the politics of climate change. And I think that, that they're 
just reluctant to mm. get get bold and aggressive. And I think the most amazing thing I have seen, I would say since January of 2020, the private sector has become more and more emboldened to address in a creative way, all aspects of climate change. The conversations that we're having with the private sector today are mind blowing compared to what the conversations were three years ago. It's just night and day difference. Well, that's damn sad. You know, I, I don't want to, you know, I, Kelly Burks Cups, who's the head of that project for the Galveston District of the Corps of Engineers, I know is a close uh, colleague of yours because you've been working on this project since its inception. And we think very highly of, the, of them and their work. We do. We all think very highly of them. And we're going to get a new colonel here soon. And, uh, you know, I, I it sounds like uh, the real opportunity for this to, to be executed is in the private sector. Uh, just more nimble, more responsive. But uh, Jim, I don't want you to give up on our friends at the core. Uh, this, the, you know, this is the right thing to do, and to see it integrated into a large-scale federal project would really change the world. Uh, given, well, I'd the- love to see it. I mean, you know, and it makes so much sense. Uh, it would be it's a perfect, uh, I think, a perfect match. I think the core has struggled for. I mean, I talk. Uh, nationwide for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, I taught environmental law for them out of the uh, through the University of Alabama at Huntsville for from about '78 to about '92, and uh, really gained a great appreciation for both the complexity of the Corps in terms of the differences of the different districts, but also for the traditions and for the fabulous role that the Corps has paid, played over the years in our coastal thinking. Uh, and I would love to see you are them. Such a sweet, able- you're such a sweetheart, I got to tell you. Yeah, uh, I've also sued them. Um, so, uh, but I agree I with you. I agree back. with you. You know, so I mean, you know, it, it's with a lot of mixed emotions that I, you know, I think of the Corps. There is so much potential there that is unrealized and I would love to help the core to realize the potential that they have because we need to think differently about coastal infrastructure. Uh, we need to talk honestly about sea level rise. We need to talk honestly about category three, four, five storms becoming more prevalent. There's so much we need to get into that. Frankly, we've all been, uh, everyone that is certainly working at the government level has been very hesitant to step too deep out there for fear you get your legs chopped off. Yeah, but uh, it, this is starting to make sense. And I think that, uh, Jim, that's why the work that you're doing and uh, the, the, your relentless uh, communication work, particularly getting the message out and talking to uh, not only leaders and, and project leaders, and, but you know, just the folks out there, about how this could work, I think is really cool. Now I'm gonna throw. I'm I'm in my spitball mode now, Peter. Go ahead. Okay. So you know, in like World War II, we had war bonds. Yeah. To mm-hmm. fight the war. Now I'm thinking, like, what if what if the Army Corps had a carbon bond that you could that they would sell? And I mean, you think about all the public land, all those channels, all of that dredging. If they're thin layer placing, I mean, I'm telling you, I think that you know the science, I think will show that these activities are sequestering carbon. And I don't know, Jim, I would, I, I would want to invest in that even a little bit. I want to pitch in. I want to help out. I think it would be popular. I think it would be a good morale booster. 
I think there's going to be any number of ideas like that. I would tell you the financial sector is the most creative sector right now. Uh, really, ever since BlackRock Financial made this announcement of its change in its carbon policy in January of 2020, uh, the financial sector has been the leader of you really can't borrow money now without an ESG plan that addresses carbon. And that's across almost all industries. And that has had huge impact. Uh, we're seeing uh, discussions in Houston uh, that, you know, just simply did not occur prior to January of 2020. And, and it's the role right now of the financial sector. And I've been, you know, this is becoming, I think, the standard across, and by the way, all of this has pretty much happened outside of government because mm -hmm. there's no governmental agreement at the federal or at the state of Texas level about how to go forward with this. And because it's been in the private sector, it's it's been a bit more, uh, frankly, chaotic, uh, creative. Uh, it is not standard principle. This isn't the environmental law that I grew up with. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a regulatory environmental lawyer. I know that stuff backwards and forwards. You don't enable a market like we're trying to do with regulation. You have to basically remove the barriers and open the market up and get it going. And that's what B Carbon has been working on significantly. Our concept of solving the climate problem is to create a market that will pay landowners for doing the right thing. And the more we can implement that thinking, I think the better chance we've got of reaching scale quicker Good. than any other pathway. Good stuff. Uh, let me ask you, you know, you're in, you're in the great city of Houston, uh, the fourth largest city in the United States, the energy capital of the United States, one of the most diverse cities in the U.S. I love it the city the of Houston. It is the most diverse city. Yes, yeah, fantastic city. And Jim, over the last... I'd say year or so uh, in doing coastal news today, I see more and more the city of Houston moving in serious directions with respect to climate change response uh, in the investment in, in potential hydrogen projects, substantial investment in carbon capture and sequestration. Uh, this is the universities in the city, the think tanks are really, and, and the energy companies uh, What's your sense of what's happening in the city of Houston? Do you foresee the city of Houston being the leading city on climate response strategies in the U.S.? Actually, I do. I'm as amazing as that may seem to a lot of people. <laughs> uh, Bobby Tudor was president of the uh, Houston Partnership. It, 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 in the same January of 2020, when BlackRock made this announcement, Bobby Tudor kind of gave a state of the city. And for the first time I can remember, somebody that was in a fairly high position in business came out and talked openly about climate change. And he basically said, Houston's got to become not only the energy capital of the world, but the capital of carbon sequestration and adaptation thinking in the oil and gas industry, or we won't have an oil and gas industry. And he was very clear about that. And that reverberated. Uh, now, I think what you're seeing is every industry taking a hard look at efficiency. Where can they become more efficient? Uh, any money you spend there, you spend it one time and it will reap rewards uh, well into the future. A lot of, I'm talking to a plastics company that's gonna create a 2000 acre uh, photovoltaic farm and take their cogen units down. So we're moving, they're moving into renewables. Most every industry on the coast is looking at capture of carbon dioxide at the stack level 
and trying to see if it's economical in any way to pump that carbon dioxide into a deep underground formation. Mm -hmm. Most everyone's looking at that. You mentioned hydrogen. Absolutely, a lot of interest in hydrogen and a hydrogen uh, kind of as a central uh, future energy uh, source. Uh, and then you've got nature-based uh, solutions on top of that with all sorts of technology, um, you know, technology of various types uh, kind of interactive uh, throughout. So uh, it's just an amazing transition time period. There's probably more creative thinking at the Baker Institute at Rice at the University of Houston's Energy Center. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody yeah. is working on these issues almost as fast as they can. Man. Well, it, it, it's, it's a good thing you're alive, and it's a good thing we've hung around long enough to see the world start to change, because I agree with you, Jim. I think uh, Texas, to the surprise of almost everyone, I think, and particularly the city of Houston, being a leading uh, uh, community in response to climate change, innovation, and adaptation is kind of stunning. And uh, it's a cool thing to see. Now, the proof's going to be in the pudding uh, the reality, though, is billions of dollars are being invested in Texas and in the city of Houston in climate adaptation, climate uh, carbon capture and sequestration. And that's going to that's going to do something. Uh, we'll get to find out what it does. But I'm pretty thrilled to be seeing this happen in the state of Texas. Well, you know, and no credit to the government, as you said, you know, this isn't a government well, initiative. No, it's, it's interesting. It's not. And. What it is, I think, is it, it, it shows that there is an incredible amount of creativity once everyone becomes focused. And I think that's what's been the hardest thing is to focus that this has to be dealt with. And, you know, certainly Hurricane Harvey and the rainfalls we got with Harvey helped, uh, being followed by Imelda almost immediately thereafter. Uh, when you start seeing these 500 to 10,000 year storms happening twice in three years, you know, that tells you things are changing. And I think all of a sudden it's really begun to penetrate that we we're really facing a true uh, crisis for the future of the planet and uh, certainly for the human habitation of it. And we've got to get serious about uh, doing something about it. And the neat thing about nature is nature is the, frankly, technological solution for taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. It, you know, CO2 is so dispersed, technologies really have some trouble concentrating it. And um, nature, nature knows how to do it. So if I had patented photosynthesis, <laughs> I think actually it would be treated very, very differently. Hey, the good Lord has that patent. He does. What, what I hear. Or whomever. <laughs> and uh, the, I think the important point there, though, is that a lot of companies have trouble understanding how to rely on nature because they're so used to buying a technology and this is just not within the mindset it's just outside of the outside of the boundaries they've been playing in and so part of this is increasing the scope of vision and that's a tricky thing and uh, we don't have a lot of um, it's not like you know Jules Verne didn't didn't draw this one up I think if he if he had up we'd be in a lot better shape well I love it I think that this is exactly the way we should be thinking um, and it's it's localized you know we all live in somewhere where we have uh, actual natural systems sequestering carbon right in our site and uh, I'm not saying that all of these are going to be permitted projects where that are uh, registered <laughs> 
as, as but just the recognition, the social recognition, is uh, the beginning of the market. And I, all of that excitement, all of this lead-in energy, is clearly the beginning of something very big. And uh, I'm, I'm stoked to see it happen, Jim. Well, I'm hopeful that. Uh, I'm very grateful that I'm having some small part in this, and hopefully we will have many small parts coming together to reach scale because it's going to take all of us working on this to get there. It's not going to be any one solution. No. As I say, it's taken a million decisions to get us into this problem, and it's going to take a million decisions to get us out of it. It's an all-hands-on-deck exercise. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, it is the great Jim Blackburn, good friend of the American Shoreline podcast, a leading innovative thinker on environmental issues and particularly climate change, president of the Texas Coastal Exchange, CEO and board chairman of B Carbon. Check them out online. Some of the most innovative thinking going on on coastal restoration, Jim. What a pleasure to get an update and you got to promise to come back as this thing starts to take better shape. Uh, We'd love to keep our listeners advised. I'll be happy to come back anytime that you ask me to. Thank you guys for having me. Tyler, Peter. Beaches and sail to build hotels. My father 